Good evening, everyone. Good to see you. You had a good day? Did you enjoy the cool change? Yeah. I told you my text. I thought I'd be weatherman as well as, you know, it's just trying to, try to expand the pastoral ministry to include weather predictions. Uh, I heard it on the radio. I thought you'd be interested. And, uh, and, and a couple of people thanked me, actually, for giving a weather prediction because they brought a jumper to church, which they wouldn't have otherwise brought. So, you know, just, just here, love you and see. But um, I'm going to pray this amazing passage of the Bible. Uh, you really need a Bible open. So if, if you don't, could just whack up your hand. If, you, if, if anyone doesn't have a Bible that you can see, just whack it up again and um, uh, we'll get one to you. And also there's an outline of my talk just there. So, cool. Okay. And maybe, Cam, a couple up back here too, man. Yeah. All right. Here we go. Uh, and there's an outline of the talk too. Why don't I pray? Uh, and we'll come to this uh, great speech of Paul's um, together. Let's pray. Um, our dear Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you so much for your word. And Father, we thank you for the incredible work that you've done through the Apostle Paul. Uh, Father, we know that we are sitting here today because of him. Uh, because the message of the gospel first went to Europe and then to other places and has come to us. Uh, Father, we're incredibly thankful. And we know, Father, that when Paul stood on that rock at Mars Hill that we're about to read about, that no one there had ever heard anyone speak to them about Jesus. And so we pray, Father, that you'll give us great understanding of who Jesus is and what he's done and what he's asking of us tonight. And uh, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I'd love to go to this place. Now, tell me, who has been there? Who's been there? Dares you've been there. Yes, the Verons have been to every sort of major sort of Greek, you know, place. Tell me, who, where, where is this? What is this? It's where the Areopagus met. It's actually called, most commonly called Mars Hill. You can go and sort of visit it today. And the reason why this is on my bucket list to go and visit is because this passage that we're hearing tonight was, we know for sure, preached on that rock. Right, so the Apostle Paul, in somewhere between 50 and 54 AD, was invited by the Areopagus to speak, and he spoke on that rock, and we're hearing about it um, almost 2,000 years later. So it's on the bucket list. And the other reason why it's on the bucket list is that the reason why any of us have heard about Jesus is because Paul went to that place. Because as we've been following him, he's gone through Berea and Thessalonica. I mean, this is the first time that the gospel has gone to anywhere in Europe. Uh, Christianity at this point is just a small but very fast-growing religion. And Paul is sort of on this rock. He's speaking to people who've never heard about Jesus before. And the gospel then goes where? It goes throughout Europe and then goes through the centuries. It ends up at a place that didn't exist at this point called England. All right? It came out on a boat to Australia. Some of us didn't hear it in Australia. Some of us heard of it overseas. But the whole reason why this church exists now is because Paul spoke on that rock. And so that's why it's on the bucket list. Uh, but you know, at this point, we're following our story through Acts. We're looking at the Acts of the Apostles, what happened after Jesus rose from the dead. And at this point, okay, uh, Paul's been through Berea and through Thessalonica, and there have been riots all over the place because of what he's teaching about Jesus. And then all of a sudden, his travelling companions think, well, maybe we'll just smuggle him off to Athens, and he can just sort of quieten down a bit, and, or maybe just have a bit of a break. But Paul doesn't have a break. I mean, he gets to Athens and he feels something. And so he does something. Look at verse 16 of Acts 17, how he felt when he got into Athens. So while Paul 
was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was troubled within him when he saw that the city was full of idols. So Paul walks into the city and he can see as he walks around that this city is full of the worship of, of idols. And, it, and literally it says there his spirit was troubled or he's, he's mortified, right? This is a tragedy. Right? God had made these people and yet here they are worshipping lots of idols. And so he felt something. And so what does he do? He says, oh, look, you know, like they've got their religion in Athens. And I've got my religion, which is centered on Jesus. I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll just say nothing. I mean, they've got their religion, I've got mine. We'll just Does he do that? No, of course not. Look what he does in verse 17. Respectfully, he says this. So what does he do? He, he, he was upset about this, so he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with those who worship God in the marketplace every day with those who happen to be there. So you've got to remember that the Apostle Paul, he's a Jew, he was a Jewish Pharisee. He'd, he'd murdered Christians. And then the Lord Jesus had appeared to him and given him a mission to take the gospel to the nations. And now he's arrived in Athens. Now, Athens was a really important city in the ancient world. Uh, I mean, a couple of hundred years before this, there was about 200,000 people living in Athens. But Athens has now dwindled down to about 40,000 people. It wasn't the superpower that it once was. But it was still the center of learning and philosophy. So Socrates and Plato and all of these philosophers that you hear about uh, resided and worked in Athens. So it was a centre of thinking. But it was also a centre of commerce, right? So lots of trade went out from Athens. So Paul knew, if I go to Athens and I see the people of Athens changed by the gospel, they're going to take this gospel on their business routes all over the modern world. So Paul goes to Athens. It's a very strategic place. And what does he do first? He goes into the synagogue as he normally would and talks to the Jews. And then what does he do? He gets on a train and he goes into the CBD and he goes to the markets at Piermont. And he finds whoever would talk to him about Jesus and he just starts talking to them. And all of a sudden, the intellectual elite of the city start to mock him. They laugh at him. Now look at verse 18 of what was happening. So then also, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers argued with him. Some said, what's this pseudo-intellectual trying to say? Uh, that's a smart aleck way of saying... He's just a gossiper who's using other people's ideas. He's not a real intellectual. Others were totally confused. Uh, look at the rest of verse 18. Others replied, He seems to be a preacher of foreign deities because he was telling the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Do you know what they thought? When, G when Paul was preaching, they thought that Paul was saying this, Jesus is one God and the resurrection is another God. Now, we know that that's not true, that Jesus is the beginning of the resurrection and that his resurrection was the first. But some people are totally confused, thinking he was talking about multiple gods. But others, just like today, were curious to find out more. Uh, look, look at verse 19 and 20. Right? Some of them said, they took him and they brought him to the Areopagus and said, may we learn about this new teaching you're speaking of? For what you say sounds strange to us, and we want to know what these ideas mean. I mean, there's no doubt that all these people that were gathering on this rock at the Areopagus on that day, they'd heard the rumours that Jesus had risen from the dead, that it happened in Jerusalem, that all of a sudden that had sparked this new movement called Christianity, and the Apostle Paul was the sort of leader of this new movement. And so the Areopagus says, we want to find out more about this, so Paul, we want you to stand up on that rock, and we want you to tell, tell us what 
on earth this is all about. They'd never heard anything about him before. So this speech was not given in a church. And this is what Paul says. He stood on that rock in between 50 and 54 AD. And he said this, verse 22. He stood in the middle of the Areopagus and he said, Men of Athens, I can see that you are extremely religious in every respect. For, as I was passing through your city and observing the objects of your worship, I even found an altar on which was inscribed to an unknown God. So Paul had been on this tour of the city. He'd seen that they had statues all over the place, idols, and they even had one to an unknown God. Now, how on earth did that happen? Well, tradition has it. We don't know this for sure. Tradition has it that around this time, a plague sort of broke out in Athens, and all of a sudden, people were dying all over the place. And so they thought, maybe we've upset one of the gods. So what we're going to do, because in those days, the, the ancients, most of them thought that the gods were mean and capricious. And basically, you had to sacrifice to them to make sure that they weren't angry with you. And so what they decided to do is they got a whole bunch of sheep. I don't know if you would have done this. And they let them go throughout the city. And all of a sudden, the sheep started to die. And when the sheep died in a particular place, they thought maybe the local deity there is angry with us. So they'd offer a sacrifice to that god. But what happened was, is that one of the sheep died in a place where they didn't know where the local deity was. They didn't know who it was. So they thought, okay, we better make a, an idol to an unknown god just to make sure that he's not annoyed. That, tradition has it that that's exactly uh, what happened. So Paul could see that Athens was very spiritual, but very confused. Um, this is just some of what he would have seen when he saw when he went around the city. So this is the, uh, the Parthenon of Athena. So that would have overshadowed uh, lots of the city, would have seen that. Uh, he also would have seen statues to deities like this. He would have seen Aphrodite, uh, the goddess of beauty, um, Hephaestus, uh, the sort of the, the, the god of uh, craftsmanship. Um, who's this? Ares, the god of war. And then you've got Artemis, uh, the goddess of fertility and wealth. And so all these sort of idols and statues were sort of all set up all around the city. And you know... The first century Athens was just a real magnet for all sorts of religious claims from all over the, the empire, right? Do you know, in this time, 30,000 gods were registered in Athens, right? And there was only 40,000 people. So, so one of the historians said it would have been easier to find a god than a person in ancient Athens, and that's true. It was the first century equivalent of the Mind, Body and Spirit Festival. Right? If you had a vision, if you had an enlightenment, if you had a dictation from a god, if you had any spiritual idea, then you would come into Athens and the Areopagus was the place where it would got, get talked about. Now look at verse 21. Luke sets up Paul's speech this way. He says, All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there in Athens spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. In other words, the Athenians were into all sorts of new fads. Right? They, they would have loved, what does the fox say? Uh, they would have been into that for about a week, because I reckon it'll last about another week, right? and then it'll be something else. But when it came to new religious fads, they were into anything, they would listen to anything. They didn't, I, I imagine they had jobs, but they spent significant time in the Areopagus talking about this sort of stuff. They were like Sydney, very spiritually open-minded. Do you know the projections say that in 50 years, Sydney will be the most ethnically diverse city possibly in the world? Don't you look forward to that? 
Won't that be an amazing time? The most ethnically diverse city in the world, possibly, right? I don't know. Byron's a statistician. He might come to me and say, I don't know who told you that. That's not true. But apparently that's true, right? Sydney is a very spiritually open-minded city, and so was Athens, and Paul could see they were very religious but very confused. Now, when most of us think about idolatry, what do you think of? Most of us think of primitive people bowing down to statues, or we think of Simon Cowell and he's you know, baptising the next you know, American idol to be the, the star that we need to worship. Right? That, that's what we think when we think of idols. But isn't it true that every culture has its idols? And it's very easy for us to pick on the Athenians and say, how could you have 30,000 gods, the god of the sun, the god of the moon, the god of everything else, the god of fertility and wealth? That's just ridiculous, right? And yet every culture has its own shrines. It's just that our shrines are like office towers and, and gyms and nightclubs and the places where we go and we offer sacrifices in order to procure the good life and to ward off disaster. Isn't that right? I mean, what, what, are, the, what are the gods of, of wealth and money and power and achievement and our friends' approval that haven't achieved cosmic proportions like they did in Athens? Isn't this true, right? See, see this picture. You may not, before you came to church tonight, have bowed down to Aphrodite. But tell me you didn't, some of you didn't look in the mirror and you didn't like what you see because our silly city tells you to not like what you see. We may not think that we worship the goddess of beauty, but how many men and women need to feel depressed and empty because of their body image before we realise that, well, Aphrodite may not be true, but she's winning. And, uh, you know, like, we, we, we may not have, you may not have burnt any incense to Artemis. Like, I don't know if you've got an Artemis statue at home. And I don't, I don't know if you've got any candles that you light to Artemis. But Artemis is the, is, is the goddess of, of wealth and security, right? But as soon as our money and our career are sort of raised to proportion so much that we perform a bit of a friend sacrifice and end up not spending any time with our family and friends in this endless pursuit of money and wealth and career and prestige, then you might as well go home and light a candle to Artemis because we're doing exactly the same thing. We're meant to worship our creator who made us, not the things that he made. That's Paul's point. Have a look at verse 23. He says, Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, he is the Lord of heaven and earth, and he doesn't live in shrines made by hands. Neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives everyone life and breath and all things. He's saying that God is our creator, and he gives us everything, life and breath, your job, your house, your car, your family, your friends, all of that has come from his good hand. That's where it comes from. Not only that, we all have a common ancestor. His name's Adam. Have a look at verse 26. Paul says, From one man, Adam, has made every nationality to live over the whole earth, and he's determined their appointed times and the boundaries of where they live. What Paul is saying is that the very fact that you're sitting here right now is no fluke. Not at all. Right? Um, there's a purpose to it. What's the purpose? Verse 27. 
He did this so that they, that's us, might seek God and perhaps they might reach out and find him, though he's not far from each of us. For in him, in God, we live and move and exist. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Uh, you see, in Athenian culture, they were into emperor worship and Zeus. Um, he, was the, um, he was the greatest of all of the gods. Uh, so basically, uh, w- what Paul is saying here is he's quoting one of their poets, one of the sort of rock stars of their age, Aratus. And Aratus says that Zeus, that we're his offspring. And Paul turns around and says, no. No, I respect you, Athens. I respect your intellectual capability. But no, we're not Zeus's offspring. We're God's offspring. Jesus is risen from the dead. And we're from him, not Zeus. But he disagrees with the people he's talking to. And every person needs to bow before Jesus. Look at verse 29. He says, being God's offspring then, we shouldn't think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image fashioned by human art and imagination. Paul is saying that we're meant to worship our creator, not the things that he's created. Now, how does that actually happen, though? Because some of us, we wake up one morning, doesn't this happen? Idols sort of creep in. And then all of a sudden, you're worshipping something that God's made rather than him, and you didn't even realise it. How does this happen? And then we start to do more and more irrational things in order to, and in our devotion to this idol. You ever had that happen? And you wake up and you think, what on earth am I doing? And why am I devoting my time and my energy and my passions and my emotions to this thing? You're sort of like someone who's drunk and you wake up the next morning, you can't remember the night before, and you think, how on earth did I get here? How did I lose perspective and worship created things rather than creator? How does that happen? Well, the Bible says, and God says, that our human hearts are an idol factory. We make them. Uh, check, check this out. Check this verse. Paul says, uh, no, sorry, the, God says in Ezekiel chapter 14, verse 3, he says this. He says to the elders of Israel, these men have set up idols in their hearts. In other words, what he's saying is that God is saying to us is that the idols that we produce, they actually come from within us and they come from our hearts. We make them. And I'm sure lots of you, like the people who first read this statement, would say, what idol? I don't have an idol. I don't worship idols. But God is saying that we take the very good things of this life, career and money and friendships and what other people think of us, and we actually turn them into ultimate things. We turn the very good things of life into ultimate things. And that is a bad thing. We deify them. We end up putting them at the very centre of our lives and they become the thing that gives us meaning and gives us purpose and gives us worth. And Paul says, no, that place belongs to Jesus. Now, most of the time when I give this talk, I pick on one issue. Pick on money. Why, why, do, why do you think I pick on the, money, the, the idol of money? Why is that? Because I'm a mean pastor and... Well, one, because I know my own heart. And two, because Sydney's the richest city in the world. 
So you figure that, I guess, lots of us are going to struggle with riches if Sydney is the richest city in the world. And the very fact that you don't believe that it's the richest city in the world is the first step to knowing that you're deluded uh, by the fact that we live in the richest city in the world. But we do. But the truth is, is that we're so focused on wealth sometimes, and as soon as I mention that, you go, yeah, get the person three people down from me. Right? They are so greedy. Right? And God really needs to deal with their materialism and their idol of money. But you know what the problem is? Is that anything can be an idol. And everything in this world has been someone's idol. Everyone's idol is different. Right? Is it wrong to want to be fit and financially secure and to pursue a career? Is it? Not at all. But what, see, most of us make the problem with idolatry is that we think that idols are bad things. No, idols are often not bad things. Idols are often good things. And if you have a good thing, it has the very best opportunity of becoming an idol in your life. The better something is, the more likely you're to think that if I just get it, and I just have it, and I just succeed in this, if I just feel fulfilled in this, then I'll be happy. Then I'll be satisfied. The very best things in life have the best chance of being your idol other than God. Because an idol is when anything in this world is more important to you than God. Have a look at verse 29, what Paul says. He says, Since we're God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. Right? Now, none of us would be literally tempted to bow down before your car. Right? Or you might, if you're Sebastian Vettel, right, and you've just won the World Championship. Those who enjoy F1, you'll know what I'm talking about. Those who don't, don't worry about it. Um, it's right. But we, you may not be tempted to literally sort of do this before any sort of physical object. But I'll tell you what, I'll tell you how you work out your idol. Or the thing that you are tempting to put at the centre of your life other than God. I'll ask you a question. What is in your nightmares? What is it? that is so essential to your life that if it went missing or if you never had it, you would feel unsatisfied and life wasn't worth living. What is it? What is the thing that holds that position in your heart that has the chief of your emotions, the best of your time, the best of your emotions, the best of your money without even a second thought? What is it that if someone took it away or never gave it to you, you'd be uncontrollably angry and anxious and you would be despondent? Have you got something in your head? That is either your idol or the thing you're most tempted to idolise. And can you see that it can be anything? And it can be really good things. It can be like family, it can be career, it can be friendships. It can be what our friends think of us. It can be experiences. It can be holidays. It can be security. It can be your beauty. It can be your brains. It can be anything. It's when you turn a good thing and you make it the place that gives you peace and security and satisfaction that rightfully belongs to your creator who is Jesus. And it robs him of the honor that belongs to him as your creator. That's what's going on here. Because you know, and I stole this from someone else, 
the biggest factor in determining how you live your life tomorrow is where you put God in it. If he's at the centre, that will change everything. But do you know what? This whole talk that I just gave assumes something massive. Do you know what this whole talk assumes? That actually Jesus is God in human flesh. That Jesus actually did rise from the dead. That the reason why we're meeting together here is actually legit. That the things that were done in history and that Paul spoke about on the Areopagus, at the Areopagus, were actually happened and were true. It's a massive assumption, right? Because everyone, the people that were listening to Paul on the Areopagus on that day, do you know that not heaps of them weren't convinced that what Paul was saying was true? I mean, they'd never heard about it before. And so what does Paul do? Well, look what he does. Verse 17 is what he did. What do you say to a city full of idols? Well, so he reasoned in the synagogue, the meeting place of the Jews, with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. Right? Paul had to prove his claim. Why? Because Christianity is not blind faith. Christianity is not throw your brains out the window. Christianity is based on the historical fact that Jesus of Nazareth lived in the time that he lived, that it was recorded in the scriptures, that he died, that after three days he rose again according to the scriptures, that he's alive and well today, and then he's coming back to judge the living and the dead. That is historical fact. And Christianity lives or dies on history. See, Christianity is totally different to Buddhism. It's totally different to Islam. It's totally different to Hinduism. They're not historical faiths. They're not not asking us to base our trust on things that happened in history, but Christianity is open to the challenge of history. And so if it didn't happen, then don't believe it. And so what does Paul do? He reasons and he explains and he answers questions and he opens up the Bible to scrutiny. And not everyone liked it. And do you know what? He went down to the marketplace and he met, you know, Joe, the fisherman. He was selling him fish and he, and, and he was friends with Joe. I'm making this up, right? But you know what I'm saying, right? And, and he knows Joe and he loves Joe. Joe's his new friend in Athens who gives him fish each day. And he says to Joe, Joe, you're my friend, but I love you more than our friendship. So I'm going to, make a, I'm going to risk this and I'm going to say that Jesus is risen from the dead. What do you think? Because he loves his friend more than his friendships. Not only that, he said this to the Areopagus. Do you know in the Areopagus, when it was founded, this was the statement that was said when it was opened. They said this, When a man dies, the earth drinks up his blood, there is no resurrection. The whole Areopagus was founded on the fact that when we live, we die, and that's it. We're worm food in the end, and there's no resurrection after that. And so they set up this court, the Areopagus, because they thought there's no judgment after death, so we better get judgment right now. And Paul says, no, Jesus is risen from the dead. He is the judge. And now is the moment to change your allegiance from your idols to him. Uh, Look at verse 30 of Acts 17. And this might be you. Paul says, therefore... Having overlooked the times of ignorance, God now commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he's actually set a day when he's going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he's appointed. 
And he's given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. What Paul is saying is that you people in Athens, you've worshipped idols for such a long time that God has overlooked that ignorance. But now is your moment to turn from worshipping idols to turn to Jesus. Now is it. Because he's actually going to come back one day to judge the world. And people reacted to this message in about the same myriad of ways as people react to it today. The first response is some people said, Paul, you're a lunatic. You're crazy. Look at verse 32. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some began to ridicule him. They laughed at him. Resurrection from the dead, Paul, you're a joker. And do you know what the crazy thing is? It's that some people today make that same response to Jesus and yet haven't checked out the evidence. That's a crazy thing to do. It's okay to reject Jesus having checked out the evidence, but it's a crazy thing to do to reject Jesus without checking out the evidence. Uh, Some people actually wanted to know more. Did you see that? The rest of that verse, 32. But others said, we'd like to hear you again about this. So some come and they say, Paul, we've heard you about Jesus. We've heard your claims, but we're not quite ready to... We want to know more. We want to hear you again. We want to catch up for lunch. Want to read the Bible? I want to talk about this a bit. That's fine, right? Some wanted to know more. Some said we know enough. We wanted to turn to Jesus. Look at verse thirty-three. Then Paul left their presence. However, some men joined him, and believed, including Dion. I can't say Dionysus. Whoever that person is, the Areopagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Some said to Paul, look, we know enough and we know enough to turn to Jesus. So can I say that in a room as big as this tonight, there are people in all three categories. I know that as some of you have been hearing my talk, some of you have said, thanks for coming, Luther. If we'd have heard Paul in the first place and we've heard you, you're crazy. The resurrection didn't happen. There's no historical basis for it. I don't want to hear any more. Thanks for coming. Some of you will say, you know what, I, sort of, I, I, I like the idea of Christianity. I like Jesus, I'm compelled, but I want to know more. That may be you. Or this could be you. You may have said, I've never heard of Jesus before, but I'm convinced that actually God did make me. He didn't make me to worship other things. He made me to worship him. And I want to turn to him, just like some of them did, some of the Areopagites. Some of you think I'm crazy and Jesus is crazy. Some of you want to know more. Some of you are ready to turn to Jesus. Um, Please come and talk to me afterwards because I'd love to reason with you and explain to you and talk to you about him. Why don't I pray? Let's pray. Our dear Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for the Apostle Paul who who made it so clear that, uh, that we're not random, that we just didn't appear, uh, Father, that you created us, that you created us to, to honour you and to worship you, to, to not worship idols, the things that we've made, but to devote our lives and to put you at the centre. Uh, Father, we know that um, so many of the good things that you've given us actually tempt us to, to find our meaning and our purpose and worth and satisfaction in them. 
Father, we pray for those of us who already follow Jesus that the things, the idols that we're tempted to to put towards the centre of our life and to replace Jesus there, that you would help us to repent of them. Father, you would help us to not be damaged spiritually by what they do to us. Father, please help us to repent and to change. Father, I pray that for those of us here who still have questions about Jesus and would like to know more, Father, you would provide people to reason with them and explain things and explore the historical faith that is Christianity. Uh, Father, we know that uh, Jesus is coming again and that now is the moment of history where you've given people the opportunity to turn back to him. Father, we pray that you would help us to take that chance and to turn to him. And we pray this in Jesus' great name. Amen.